Welcome to Global Missions Health Conference 2020. Social Enterprise and Missions Today. Phil and I are planners and God has such a sense of humor because he's messed with our plans our entire ministry. I always thought I was a change agent until I realized I only like change I choose, not 13 surgeries between four kids raised in the developing world. While I was dating Phil, I discovered that he had our life in 15 minute slots. He had potty breaks and food and me in those and I realized I had to have veto power over those slots or this relationship wasn't going to work and I've been messing up his slots ever since. I married a man with a PhD in international development and planning. If that man had to plant a daisy, he'd go buy three books on it and study it first. I'd just shove them in the ground and see which ones lived or died. But for sure, if you shoot for nothing, you hit it every time. So make a plan and then ask God to mess with it. Today in this workshop on social enterprise and medical missions, my hubby, Dr. Phil McDonald, will jump in now and then and join us in the Q&A time. Phil is the head of Leader Empowerment and Development, LEAD, in 21 lands and 200 programs with a focus mostly on macro enterprise, large people groups, church movements. Macro has greater risk, but greater reward. My focus has usually been micro enterprise, targeted groups, a woman or a group of women wounded or at risk. Less risk for sure, but less reward. Often my micros turn into macros. Macro though is way more fun. And nevertheless, my motto is dream big and start small. Phil's motto is just dream big. Both work depending on many factors. I'm the president and founder of Women at Risk International in 55 lands and 200 programs, including the USA. We address 15 different risk issues, female circumcision, honor killings, domestic violence, rape, AIDS, but we're most known for our fight against human trafficking, this century's fastest growing crime, slavery. I'm licensed in all 50 states to train medical professionals in CMEs and CEUs in the eight health categories where they would see human trafficking in their offices and industry and how to respond, which is how I came to be involved in GMHC. My passion began as a child. At age five, my family moved. My father was a surgeon. I was a missionary kid. We moved to the land of East Pakistan where I lived until college. And by the age of 14, we had been through two wars. I went to boarding school in West Pakistan. And at age 14, West Pak conducted a genocide against the East Pakistani people and we became Bangladesh. My girlfriend was 14 and she was raped and fought back. To teach her, you have no voice, you are property. In that context, they poured acid not in her face as usual, but down her throat to silence her forever. And God used the acid of her suffering to burn a hole in my heart and set me on a pathway of being the voice of the silenced, wrapping arms of love around wounded and giving them a safe place to rewrite the story of their lives. Together, we have spent over three decades in international ministry. In 45 minutes, we are going to touch on just a few key ideas. Later, we'll talk about Phil's book that has 60 principles, but we have picked five key ideas or core values with the last one having 10 principles for social enterprise. The first core value is dignity. Dignity through handouts versus handouts through independence, mostly financial independence. The dirty little secret of 150 years of the American government and ministry overseas is we've created a gigantic welfare system. We've created dependency hostility. We have not created independence. For sure, if somebody's starving, by all means, give them a fish. But please, can I teach them to fish, make fishing poles and sell their fish and create a fishing community. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says, work with your hands as commanded and do not be dependent on anyone. 
When you rescue a person that's been shackled in a basement or in a backyard to the wall with a shackle around their neck, true story, for 11 months, sold to whoever comes to the front door and brought into the safe house on a day I happen to be there at seven years old, you can't just pat that person on the head and say, nasty little life there, go to something nice. You must educate them and give them job training and a job with dignity. 90% of Cambodians rescued in a police raid and sent home without job training get resold. You must start the journey at rescue. Dignity comes through education or skills and financial independence. So in the Women's Training Center in Burma, where Association of Churches was working out of a pastor's living room and teaching their orphans three job skills, we built a women's training center for close to $100,000 that's now worth a million or more. And recently they added nursing. And so the women go to a hospital in town where a Christian doctor owns it so we know they will not be exploited. And then they move back to the villages they came from where there is no medical training. Imagine if you are a nurse in a, in a village where there's no hospital, no doctors, nothing, and you have such an incredible value-added skill. So that's an example of a micro-enterprise that turned macro. Another example would be a pastor's wife who um, I have been working with for years, and her model is that she trains 25 or more women a year, now over 130, to make jewelry and body spray and do door-to-door -door sales, kind of like an Avon kit, woman to woman, selling in the local area, which pays the bills, and then exporting to us is what sends their kids to college. She can make three times the income of a man's minimum wage job from home or more. What dignity for her in working from home and selling woman to woman, not working for non-family men that can exploit them in those cultures, but pay the bills and family treats her better. One of the girls that we rescued from trafficking in the red light district there was trained in jewelry. Once she had made enough and saved up enough money, she returned to the village the very village she was scammed from, and shared that she had come to know the true and living God. Today, there is a vibrant church plant there because of her. In Peru, we work with Fair Trade Coffee, and there a precious little lady who was once in a domestic violence situation is now the mayor. She stood up in a meeting and she said, once I was beaten, now I'm the mayor. Nobody lays a finger on me. The second core value is accountability versus enabling. And this comes through them having some skin in the game. This is a hand up, not a hand out. So microenterprise, for example, the very first goat we bought, which you see in the picture there with the American and the Sudanese woman. That woman was in domestic violence. Her husband is blind because he stepped on a landmine and he's old enough to be her father or grandfather. Their two-year-old has to lead him around. And we bought her a goat and she began growing her goat herd. What we didn't know was that in Dinka culture, that a man's value is measured by the number of livestock he owns and we were giving her the worth of a man. She still has skin in the game. She has to milk that goat, sell the milk, grow the herd, keep the goats from eating, eating poisonous grass, but she has dignity. So another example would be a cowhorn jewelry factory in the backyard to a full-blown factory or solar power that we put in for the blind school that saves hundreds of dollars a month and trains them in Braille to get jobs in banking, banking and international airport ticketing. They go from being in the slums begging to middle and upper middle class jobs or from pop-up clinics in Uzbekistan where we started the first cataract surgery center there with training from Ohio State University. And so they have to have something in the game. Phil, can you speak to the macro enterprise level? Sure, and actually skin in the game is just another way of saying they have to put something at the risk, which will motivate them to make the thing successful. I received a phone call one of my former doctoral students who had taken his family back to northern Myanmar 
And he said, my wife has been teaching our kids in school because that's what they were learning in the States. And so now our friends and neighbors want to start, have us start a school. Would you help us start a school? And I said, well, have you thought of a charter school, which is a for-profit school? He had never heard of that, but they, they liked the idea. And I said, you got to be an investor, you got to put something up. Well, they got their best friend, who's a wealthy lady, to put up the property and building. And we put up cash, and then they put up the service to actually run the school, and they earn shares that way through their service. Um, fast forward nine years later, the school now has 600 students, 40 teachers, and they're now in a new building program to expand their school. But they have to have something at risk. I've, on the other side of Myanmar, Burma, uh, I discovered a, a potential partner who had sold his home and most of his assets to buy property to build an orphanage. And he's taking in orphans and they were living in basically grass shacks. And we came along and I thought, this guy's willing to sell his own house to take care of orphans. His heart's in this. And he's going to be, well, he's already put something at risk. And so we came along and helped him build the orphanage. Now, when it comes to accountability, I look at that as two, two kinds of accountability. One is mentorship. I need to be accountable to them. They need to be accountable to me because I need to make sure they can learn through the mistakes I've already made after 35 years. Um, the other kind of accountability is that I'm just a part of the channel of stewardships. It's not my money I'm putting up. I'm putting up donated money. So somebody back here has donated the money, and we give them a grant or a loan or investment. Uh, I have to be accountable to the person that gave it to me or they'll never give money again. So that's the accountability part of this. The third core value is champion. And you will hear us talk about that a lot. Champion versus colonialism. And that comes through empowering their leaders. The second dirty little secret is colonialism, which is really just international racism. We often say that we'll start something and turn it over when we trust them. And you, how do you avoid colonialism while creating accountability? Well, you have to avoid your own ethnocentrism. Colonial thinking says, I'm in charge until I trust you. Someday when you're good enough or mature enough, I'll turn it over to you. Isn't that what we say all the time in ministry? And yet accountability says, you're in charge because you're the national. The call of God is on your life. You know your land, culture best. I'm just here to empower, facilitate, and take the fall if necessary. Colonialism to me is just international racism. We have to get over ourselves. We're not the expert in their land. We simply bring something to their table. They know their table, language, the persecution they'll go through, their laws, their faux pas. We will never know it like they do. So if you do not have a champion on the ground, you don't start it. Nationals do need something, though, that we as Americans can bring. Most Eastern cultures are cultures where they cannot lose face. So co-leading until it's set up is important because we can then take the blame as the stupid American if things go wrong. Our culture glorifies failure. We have a billboard somewhere in America that says, failed, failed, failed then became President of the United States. Persistence, pass it on, Abraham Lincoln. So we bring to the table, um, not a fear of failure, but success rises or falls on leadership. We are just there to facilitate the twinkle in their eye, not ours. So in Nepal, we have um, a husband of a partner who has planted 10 churches in 18 months. She has planted a safe house, a cafe, a counseling center, a craft center, an orphanage, mobile clinics, does relief, and her husband runs a seminary. We took a five-star cake decorator there to take them to a new level, and she also trained in Cambodia where they provide the royal family with cakes. They're so amazing. They were selling bread for a few rupees before, but the cake would bring in 1,500 rupees. And so just empowering them to do the things that work. What we've learned is that in their culture, the power, nationals know the power of PPP and pinching pennies. So I want Phil to speak to PPP. One of my early projects was in Bangladesh helping a man uh, <clears throat> actually set up the first uh, English medium graduate seminary in Bangladesh. 
And this man had three master's degrees and a doctorate from the States and had never been taught how to start up a school. That was my training. So together we worked together. And one thing I learned from him is an accounting background, the difference in the standard of living between the American and the Bangladeshi. This is one of the big mistakes in social enterprise that Americans and Europeans make. They don't fully understand the purchasing power. PPP is an economic term for purchasing power parity. What's, what's a, a dollar buy for us versus what's a dollar buy for them? And we tend to over, because a dollar doesn't mean much to us, we, we tend to overinflate, and when they can really live on very little, and it's still a good wage for them. So Dr. Shurkar went on to build a, a, not only a seminary, but a college, uh, orphanages. He's planted 24 churches, built 14 primary schools, does microenterprise. And one of the things I came along recently to help him with is doing dairy herds. Um, we can support a pastor in a, in a remote area, five dairy cows that will, that will make $1,000 profit a month when the average person would make $100 to $200 a month. This does great things for their ministry. It does great things for the reputation of the community. And we even have hospitals, two hospitals working in Bangladesh that are sustainable. One, an old mission hospital that British Baptist built over 100 years ago. That's now sustainable. And we work with another one on with, uh, by a private family that actually employs 500 doctors. And we're helping them do bring world-class heart surgeons over to teach them to do heart transplants and heart surgery. Uh, and that's very sustainable. God works through leaders all through scripture. So you can have millions of dollars, but if you have the wrong leaders, it's money down a rat's hole. If you have the right leaders and no money, you can still make change if God is in it and war is proof of that. Leaders bring change with or without resources and resources tend to follow leaders. Find your champion on the ground or don't do it. The fourth core value is generational change versus band-aids. And this can be found through multiple bottom lines. This is where you will see systemic change. And it's not just spiritual because that is what drives us in ministry. We must have that. It's not just financial. That's usually the bottom line for a for-profit business. But if all you do is make money, what profits a man if he gains the world? and loses his soul. It can be social, educational, environmental, medical, and generational. The more bottom lines you hit, the more strategic and the more systemic the change. It's awesome to see one life rescued, redeemed, restored, and empowered to walk with the true and living God. But when you see multiple generations change, it brings deep systemic change for Christ. One of our top jewelers was forced into trafficking and prostitution by her family. When we came into her life and offered her a job and a way out, she ran to that and there she came to Christ. Her mother, the grandmother, heard of her new job and wanted to understand it and came and sat outside the worship room and listened to her daughter and others in worship. And when her daughter walked out, she said, I want to know this God you talk about. Today, the grandmother, the mother, and the granddaughter are three generations walking with God. That is systemic change. The little boy you see there was brought to us at four years old by his teen slave mom in the slums. She could no longer protect him from the pedophile red light district. Today, he just graduated from engineering school and is raising his siblings. To go from being the, the child of the red light district slums to being an engineer is dramatic generational systemic change. Hasina is the woman, the first woman I ever bought a sewing machine for. She was wife number two in a Muslim home, two wives, eight kids, one husband in a room the size of a king size bed. And I taught her to gave her a sewing machine and she began making more money than her husband and the abuse stopped immediately. I was visiting her in her home with my daughter who was 12 and her daughter was 12. I pointed to the sewing machine in the corner and I said, Hasina, are you gonna teach your daughter to sew? And she said, nope. I looked at her kind of horrified 
and she said, I'm going to teach her to embroider. She will make 10 times the money that I make, and she will make a good marriage to start with, and they will treat her with dignity. <laughs> HIV widows lead a Bible study and make jewelry. When I first heard about them, they were selling rainwater in baggies with a straw in the market, determined to make a living with dignity. That's my kind of girl. Economically, their magazine jewelry is what took them from mud and sticks to brick. And then we did the cowhorn factory and we bought them cisterns and put gutters on their house that dumped the rainwater into the cisterns so they could grow crops and do drip irrigation. They have goats and chickens. So during COVID, they didn't even have to leave their home. They could eat. They could not go to the factory to make jewelry, but they had everything they needed to survive. They also now have social respect in their culture because they've been recognized by their government. They received one of four out of 2,000 applicants to double the size of their factory with a government grant. The widows that we drill wells for in Bangladesh that are harassed in their Hindu villages, when we drilled a well at the Hindu temple and the Hindus complained about our widows having wells, the Hindu leaders said, leave them alone. They drilled us a well. If you don't like it, you can leave. So educationally, kids now that are getting degrees in law and banking, doctors, lawyers, school teachers, nurses, goat herders, whatever their dream is. And so real systemic change. The fifth core value is a real plan. A real plan versus no plan. If you shoot for nothing, yes, you will hit it every time. And so if you are interested in Phil's book, it has 60 principles in it, but we have created 10 principles here for you today, just under social enterprise. And principle number one is the why, bottom line. Profit, as we said, is the usual bottom line, but it cannot stand alone. Every effort must produce spiritual results, at least in opening doors. Results, as we all know, are God-ordained, not man-driven. The more bottom lines you can count, the more strategic the, pro the project. This is not about results, but it is about strategically targeting, intentionally targeting as many bottom lines as you possibly can. The second principle is needs assessment. That's the what. This is how you answer the question of how do you determine what are the most strategic set of needs when there are so many. If you have to meet every need, you're going to feel like a you're bitten to death by a flock of ducks because it's impossible to meet all the needs. So this is how you determine which are the most important. And the key is asking nationals, both Christian and secular, not yourself, not your colleague. You're the former. You are the foreigner. So can you speak to needs assessment? In the PhD program he was in, I think the one thing that I feel like above all others that it did for our ministry all these years was it taught him and the men and women in that class how to analyze the needs of an entire nation. So we were offered a job, diplomatic job, and it would have been setting up a school district or system for an entire country. So applying this to the ministry. Sure. I usually sit down with um, our national partners or potential partners, and we do a needs assessment. We sit down and we say, what's missing? Where are the gaps? What's, uh, what's the needs that you have? This would happen to be a particular denomination. And they sat around this, this table, and I vividly remember a blank chalkboard up there. And I, I said, what are your needs? Let's write them down. And they said, you tell us what our needs are. Because they had always been used to the colonial, you know, white savior telling them what to do. And I just said, I'm sorry, um, I'm not from here. I don't know your culture. I don't know your, your economy here. I don't know what you're in your church situation. And you tell me what your needs are. And they were just uh, astounded that somebody would ask them for what they for their opinion. I said, look, I'm going to leave for 24 hours. And I want you to just start making a list on this chalkboard, and I'll come back tomorrow, and we'll work it out. I came back the next day. They had thoroughly analyzed their situation. They came up with needs, and that was a, that was a great way to get started because then we start pinpointing the really projects that would work. On a, on a national level, when I went and opened up a country for, for our organization, 
I'd go through the commerce desk at the U.S. Embassy. They had what they called the gold key service, and they would actually help you. The, the, the commercial desk would actually help you know what the needs are in a country. And we got some very good uh, leads that usually went to a, a university that were experts that would lead us to actual potential partners. And that's how we did a food processing factory uh, in Uzbekistan and also the, uh, the first um, for-profit medical practice in, in that whole region of 50 million people. The next uh, principle is strategic prioritizing. This is the which. Which thing you do first? It's finding the balance between your capabilities, because you can't do everything, and the best opportunities. And what I found is that sometimes you step into a situation and you ask questions and you've done your needs assessment. I remember vividly in Indonesia when we went in through the government and we had a professor that we had befriended his son in America and he happened to be a professor at their Ivy League school and we asked them what are your government's most important priorities because we wanted to man that with Christians and the two things they gave us were engineering and law now we knew nothing about that, Phil and Becky, but it just so happened that we had just recruited a lawyer and an engineer. And so God sometimes will bring capabilities into those opportunities and optimize that for you again. But again, you have to look at how many bottom lines does it touch. The fourth principle is the niche. This is the where, where is that special spot? Social enterprise demands market research on how to find that niche, that competitive advantage. And just because it works in one land doesn't mean it will work in another. Only research shows you that. We found a niche in the Dominican Republic that was incredible and funded our safe house. That same business plan did not work in Eastern Europe when we did the market research. It was just, it would be dead in the water. So that brings us to the fifth principle, which is crunch the numbers. This is the plan. How do you write a business plan to know viability? Clergy, doctors, generally, they, we are not financially shrewd or trained in this. And the key is you do not do this with church leaders in that land, but with business people in the church or even higher up in the community. Do not make a board of all clergy. Let one clergy sit on the board, but seriously, you need to stack the plan with business men and women, even in the brainstorming sessions, because crunching the numbers is the most important thing. Unfortunately, one of the big drawbacks in the developing world is we don't have access to good market research. And so you have to do your own guerrilla marketing on the ground. And the way to fast forward that is to talk to the local businessmen who are already there. They know the standard of living. I remember we did our, our ophthalmology eye clinic in Central Asia. Uh, we brought an American over as, a, as an expert. Uh, and he said, well, you got to do it this way. And our doctors and over there, the local doctor said, no, that won't work because we don't, we don't have optometrists to be the feeders into the ophthalmologists. And, and you're asking too much for the price of a cataract surgery. People can't afford it. And of course, uh, our expert insisted on it and we almost lost our shirt because we weren't listening to people on the ground who knew the value and what people could afford, what they couldn't afford. Then sixth thing is the power of diversification. And this is so important, the risk. How do you diversify to spread the risk? COVID has brought this powerfully home because war partners that are diversified like our HIV widows are okay because they can stay home and eat. Those that depend on 80% of their budget coming from the sale of product through war suddenly got a wake up call that we tried to emphasize before and they wouldn't listen. Overnight, our sales stopped and we were there only, uh, they were only getting what we sold online. So we would tell them, what if, you know, we get hit by the garbage truck? What if there's a nuclear attack? And they'd be like, cut it out. Now all I have to do is whisper the word COVID. <laughs> and they get it now the hard way. And so the, re the good thing about diversity is it doesn't eliminate risk. It just spreads it out so your eggs are not all in the same basket to sink or swim on your own. 
And one of the things we don't realize in the nonprofit world is people in the for-profit world, that's the real world, it's the risk of failure. And you look at the social enterprise and entrepreneurship textbooks today, you won't see much about risk. We've identified 90 risk factors you have to look at in starting up with something overseas, particularly in a remote area. And you have to be willing to realize that if you're going to do this, you might have to one day sit down with one of your partners who's put up a lot and all of a sudden it's failed. And he's across the table from you in tears because he's lost everything. And I'm telling you, that's very hard to live with. you got to have a, a, a backbone of steel to be able to do this if you're going to do this for a career. An African pastor once told Phil and I a joke about missionaries, and I think it applies to social enterprise as well. He made the comment that missionaries are like manure. If you pile them up, they stink. If you spread them out, they fertilize. And I would say the same is true of social enterprise. Spread it out. The seventh principle is champion. And you're going to hear us harp on that. This is the who. How do you find the champion on the ground, especially if you're not there? All of life comes down to leadership. So choose wisely and don't make it be you. You are only there in the background to take the fall or blame in a shame culture. So if you don't have a champion, don't do the project. The eighth principle is accountability. This is you. How do you avoid colonialism while creating accountability? Well, you have to avoid ethnocentrism and it's very hard to do that because when you're ethnocentric, you don't know it. Colonial thinking says, I'm in charge till I trust you. Someday when you're good enough, I'll turn it over. And we've, we're harping on this, but seriously, isn't that the motto in missions? You start something and when you trust somebody, you turn it over. Well, that to us is colonialism. Accountability says you're in charge. You're the national. You're called of God. You know your land and culture best. I'm just here to facilitate, empower, and take the fall if necessary. So we have to get over ourselves. We're not the experts in their land, and we simply bring something to their table, something that they understand better than we ever will. Their language, persecution, laws, faux pas, and everything they understand better than we ever will. And so accountability is giving them ownership. The ninth one is results. And I call this outcomes. How do you measure them? How do you get this straight? And you need to get it straight before you start and you will adjust as you go. If God is in it, you will discover outcomes that come about that you never expected. And so you adjust, and those are always encouraging. It shows you that something's right. But you have to learn to cut your losses early if they're financial. And you, of course, have to know that spiritual results are not up to you. Faithfulness is. And then you can delight over the outcomes you never saw coming when God anoints the work of your hand and blesses your plans by messing with them. The final one is probably the single most important one, integrity. Two kinds of integrity. So the first one is the law, the literal law of the land. How do you avoid corruption in lands where it's normative? Well, we lived and died by the US Anti-Corruption Act, which you can look up. It's called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FCPA. And you can study that and it's extremely helpful because things that are legal overseas are not here and vice versa. There are two ways to avoid corruption. One is to stay small and multiply all over, spread out your manure. So you don't come under the scrutiny of either law enforcement or the mafia or businesses or governments. And then the second is you need nationals to run interference for you. And you're always looking for a roof. Phil will describe to you what a roof is. But you need to know that many countries have conflicting laws so that you can be accused no matter what you do. And you have to learn the culture, find mentors, especially secular ones, to guide, assist, navigate, and even rescue. So in Anti-trafficking, we're always looking for a cop 
school a good cop in a country where we don't necessarily trust law enforcement who we can call in. So you have to do this. You have to do this. Whether you are planning a church or a clinic or a business. Yeah, I look at roof as being very important to your success. You have to endear yourself to someone in the power elite. For example, when we lived in the Philippines, uh, we were going through a civil war. There was uh, cops, cops constantly were underpaid, stopping us, wanting, wanting a bribe when we hadn't really broken the law. But I learned by just showing uh, General Templo's business card. He was a general that answered to the president. All I had to do was show that, and the cops left me alone. So there are ways to do things that by having a, a relationships with people in high places, they can actually protect you. I can give you many, many illustrations. Now, there's a difference between a bribe and a tip. U.S. government calls it a facilitative payment. We can do things overseas, like hire the local police, which you can't do here. Because the American government realizes to do business overseas, particularly social enterprise, you're going to have to, to work in their system. And you have to do it with as much ethics as you can. So, for example, you can give a tip to the customs agent to clear your stuff in a week instead of a year. You cannot tip them to look the other way or do something they're not allowed to do, but you can tip them to do their job, which in America you would not be allowed to do. And you really have to decide what your line of um, integrity is, the second kind of integrity, because um, <laughs> they are going to push you and you cannot compromise your integrity. Our first two converts in Asia were the bookkeepers of our eye clinic and our food processing plant because they saw that we kept honest books. I remember a doctor um, saying in the hospital that I grew up in as a child saying that giving the gift of medicine was like a legal bribe <laughs> in the sense that endeared him to the power elite. And then they owed him something. And for years, my, in my parents have had power elite in their home and that is what often kept us in a country. We want you to be encouraged. There's nothing greater than empowering a people group sold out to Christ to become independent and to leverage the gospel. And in their own community, the story of our life is that there is no greater joy for Phil and Becky McDonald than seeing men, women, and children come to know the true and living God while standing free and reaching their own through economic, social, spiritual, educational, medical, whatever empowerment. As a family, we raised four kids in the developing world, and we know the challenges of marriage, family, career, ministry, business, and social entrepreneurship in a cross-cultural setting. We never expected to be serial entrepreneurs. And we get asked all the time how we do what we do. And Phil, who is a published academic author, wrote the book, the Unreal book, as an Amazon best-selling book, which is written in memoir form, not one more boring academic book. Haha. <laughs> but the book recounts 90 stories. These are the ones we could tell. And highlights 60 principles that we learned from more than 30 years of experience. And so we are hoping you can learn from our mistakes. At the end of the day, the power of social enterprise can be summed up in one word, hope. Hope. Without hope, the Bible says, the people perish. And this is so incredibly powerful. Medical care brings hope. Healing brings hope. But if you stop there, your patient may starve. You have been trained with the ability to diagnose and bring healing. Use it to mimic the great physician. Financial independence will put food on the table and bring hope. But if you stop there, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Justice brings hope. But if you don't know the just judge, it's hollow. Abraham Lincoln understood what many survivors learned the hard way. He said, mercy bears much richer fruit than strict justice. Justice is God ordained, but it doesn't remove the scars of pain. Many times our survivors go into a deep depression after getting deserved justice. Their pain's not gone. And mercy and forgiveness 
are what they have to learn. And these are not a reforming act, they're a releasing act. They release the victim, you or me or the victim, from becoming like the one that harmed them. And it's truly divine. So let Micah be your mantra. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. It's a requirement. And you know, Albert Einstein said, the world will not be destroyed by evil people, but by good people who see evil and do nothing. That is you. As a medical professional, you have a power no others do. You can ask questions and see the unseen. Cops, clergy, those people, priests, who, they can't ask a trafficking victim the questions you can ask. And would a trafficking slave run to a cop, a priest, or a pastor, or a church for sanctuary? I don't think so. They know they'll be judged. But you know what? You and I, we are the temple of the living God. We are a sanctuary. We have the light of the world within us. And for Christ's sake, and I do mean Jesus Christ, just turn on the light. I'm Rebecca McDonald. I'm the president and founder of Women at Risk International, which is an organization in 55 countries. And we deal with 15 different risk issues, but we're most known for our fight against human trafficking. If one of us is slaved, then none of us are free. There's no greater joy than seeing a man, woman, or child rescued, restored, and empowered to dream. That's what we want for our babies. That's what we do with our own children. And that's our commitment as an organization to walk beside whoever is brought into our pathway and help them dream. It's really just important for people to become involved in some way. It doesn't have to be something big, but every effort matters. Every effort counts. The victims of human trafficking, their voices have been silenced. They don't have a voice. And so they need you, they need us to be a voice for them, to fight for their freedom. There's no place that is off limits no age or race that is off limits. It is everywhere. My name is Jen, and this means war. My name is Angel, and this means war. My name is Lauren, and this means war. My name is Joe, and this means war. Who I am doesn't matter. This means war. We can promise you that there is no greater joy than the journey of life and serving the King of Kings together. We took the path less traveled and have never looked back. We set out to change the world and it changed us forever. Thank you for attending. And now we'll go to a question and answer time.